Good morning, everyone. Uh, you go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, if I don't know you, my name is Preston. I'm one of the pastors here at St. Peter's, and it's a delight to see you all here today for worship. Uh, welcome, most welcome, and to all the kids as well, welcome to you. Uh, last week, we did a little coloring assignment task. So kids, listen up. While, while we're having the sermon, if you want to take the challenge, today the text was a song. So if you think about one of your favorite songs and try to draw a picture of it, that would be super cool. Whatever that is. Maybe Baby, Baby Beluga. That's one of mine. And you can show us later. Well, uh, let's pray together before we jump in. Lord, we thank you for the gift of this day together and hear your word once again. As we enter into your story from the book of Exodus, we pray that you'll open our eyes and our hearts to hear you speak. May we see your salvation fresh today, here, now, in our own lives, each one of us. You know what each one's carrying. Will you speak your, your words as only you, you can to the heart, Lord? Come now, in your name, amen. Well, we return to the Exodus story today that we've been walking for, through over the last couple weeks, and we will continue to walk through uh, for the next uh, five or six. And we've been exploring this time of wilderness that God's people are journeying through a wilderness of the desert, and a wilderness where they're asking, where is God? What does it look like to follow him in a barren place? And we're returning to the shores of the Red Sea, where uh, Lloyd left us last week when he uh, preached on the Israelites coming through the sea. And what we have in our passage today, as I just mentioned, is a song. It's a song reflecting back on the deliverance uh, through the sea. And it's a song that concludes really the first half of the book of Exodus. We just kind of jumped in at chapter 13, but it's wrapping up the whole part about Israel being in Egypt and uh, God bringing them out. So, as I said, we looked at the Passover the first week and God's rescue there and then uh, the Red Sea last week. And so now we have this song praising God and looking back at what he has done. Uh, it's one of the oldest pieces of poetry in the Old Testament and it's attributed to Moses and his sister, Miriam. Uh, and if you have heard the story, you might remember Miriam was old, Moses' older sister who took him when he was just a little baby boy, put him in a basket, hid him in the reeds in the Nile River. Now, many years later, uh, the, the book of Exodus tells us she's a prophetess, which means she speaks uh, on, on behalf of God which is an incredible thing, I think, for us to realize. We have a woman here being called a prophetess speaking in the ancient world, and she leads the people in worship with, alongside Moses. It's a significant moment because we're seeing what uh, the fulfillment of what Moses pleaded for with Pharaoh over and over. He would go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go that we may go into the wilderness and worship our God. And now here in this chapter 15, they're doing it. They're in the wilderness, and they're turning their hearts to God to worship Him. And that's going to be our focus and our, our main idea today. We've been looking at how God sustains us in the wilderness, and today God sustains us in the wilderness through worship, through worshiping, uh, worshiping Him. The passage is a song. It's a song. It tells us right at the beginning. So I'm going to talk a little bit about singing today. I don't use the word singing and worship interchangeably. Um, it's not a synonym. Singing is a part of our worship, especially when we gather and we're not under the restrictions that we're under right now. But worship is certainly much, much more than just singing. But we will talk a little bit about singing today. 
Uh, for, and so first question I want to ask is, why do the people sing in this passage? Why is that their response? And then second, what are they singing about? Or what compels them to sing this song to God? It's a really striking picture, isn't it? Masses of Hebrews on the shores of the Red Sea, singing over the waters that's just crashed over their oppressors, their former oppressors, Pharaoh's army, the horse and the chariot and the sword that have been bearing down on them. One way, um, one way scholars think this passage fit together is as a call and response. So you have this long section at first that's, um, that's Moses is singing, and then at the end there's like a refrain that says Miriam sang. So it, it might have sounded something like this. In verse 1, uh, Moses starts off and, and sings. I won't sing it myself, but uh, he, he sings, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And then at the very end, there's a response or an invitation from Miriam, um, inviting everyone to join in. She says, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And then back to Moses, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I, would, I will exalt him. And then it'd go back to Miriam, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into to the sea. Can you hear it, that back and forth? But why a song? Why are they even singing? Clearly something amazing has happened. God has delivered his people in a dramatic way, and the song is a response to this. But why do they join their voices in unison in this way? This really got me thinking this week. Why do we sing at church? Why, what is it that makes, it, makes us sing? Why do we do that? I called Derek, our worship leader, and asked him that. I said, well, why do we sing at church? <laughs> what is your answer to that question? And we talked about it a little bit. There's no clear, rational reason for singing. It's one thing we came to, we were thinking about together, for why we as humans can even sing. Why can we sing? There's no biological benefit or explanation just to singing. It's just a beautiful thing that we do and can do. It doesn't make any sense on a kind of an evolutionary perspective for us to sing, but there's certain moments in life, in our lives, that things happen and feel like there's a song demanded, or people just come out in song. This happens all the time in films, especially Bollywood films. If you've ever seen those, they're really good at this. Just out of nowhere, they're singing and dancing in song at the, the moments that deserve it. It's phenomenal. But when we stand in the presence of something that strikes awe in our hearts, or when we realize we're on holy ground, particularly gathered together, Something often moves people to sing, doesn't it? Once when I was a teenager, uh, I, I went on a beach trip with some friends to South Carolina near where I grew up, and I remember we were sitting on a pier one night looking out over the ocean and the stars above and the galaxies and the planets and all this kind of majesty that you feel when you're on a beach at nighttime. And there was this one of those senses of awe when you feel like God's just raising the curtain a little bit for you, and you're getting to see a glimpse of all that's around you, and uh, just his greatness. And something about it, we, we just started singing, singing worship music. No, no one decided it, no one prompted it, and broken, cracked teenager boy voices uh, singing together on a pier. It's funny to think about now. But there was another moment 
when, about a year later after this, and I was 18, and I knelt on a snowy hillside in Colorado with four to five other 18-year-olds. A classmate of ours, uh, the day before, had hit a tree in a skiing accident and died. It was extremely tragic. So we went to that place, and we gathered together, that physical place, the tree where he died, to cry out to God together in prayer and uh, come to that place and, and, and meet God. And again, no one decided it, no one planned it, but we just started singing. That time it was Amazing Grace. No one planned it, we just did it. In broken voices, something about despair and the nearness of death in that moment, and a sorrowful longing for the resurrection just called out a song. It's like the right thing to do. One of the first Protestant catechisms we have from the uh, Reformation period asks this first question. What is the chief end of mankind? Answer, mankind's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. If you've ever wondered, what's the purpose of my life? There it is. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There's no clear rational reason that we can do something like singing. There's no biological benefit. Yes, studies have shown that it's good for mental and physical health and increases social bonds, but that's not why we do it. We're able to sing, and we do sing, because our chief end is to glorify God and worship Him forever. So us, we are created for this very purpose. That's why we exist, to worship God, to marvel at Him, to enjoy His beauty and His glory. And if this is the case, then singing makes sense. And a lot of other things make sense as well. Beauty art. There's no rational explanation for any of these, no biological proof for why they exist other than for beauty themselves, because we're drawn into it by a beautiful God, a creator God, who created all of this for, by, by his pleasure and for our enjoyment and to dwell in that middle space. So singing is a gift. It helps us connect our emotions and our words in response to glorify God and to enjoy Him. And of course, like any other created goods, it can be used in different ways, but it is a gift. Israel sings here on the seashore. We sing because we're made in God's image, in His beautiful image, and it's, it helps us respond to Him. So here, for the, it's the first time recorded in the Bible, the people of God join together in song. The Lord is my strength and my song. Says verse 2, he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Yeah, it was really hard to write the sermon this week and not know that we can't sing together. It's painful. Acknowledge that too. But there's another important question here, even more important, really, and it's what are they singing about? What has compelled Israel to sing? Here's the answer. They're singing about God, clearly. They're compelled to sing because God has just rescued them from slavery and destroyed their enemies right in front of them. Pharaoh's army, the song, and the, the song is, uh, Jyoti read it earlier, it sounds foreign to our ears. It may, sound, it may have sounded a little uncomfortable to your ears. The, the song pictures God in really graphic terms as a warrior using the elements of his creation to do battle and to smite the enemies. 
Here's a couple examples. Verse 3 says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Verse 6 and 7, Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy, the greatness of your majesty. You overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. And verse 8 has my favorite imagery. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood out in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. It makes me wonder if the water turned into some jello-like substance. I don't know. It just gives me that picture. But how how do you respond to this image of God sending out his fury, consuming the enemies like stubble? Some people might think, some of you might think, here's one of these many problems with faith and Christianity coming out, that God just smites those who step out of line or who don't fit in his box. Well, the scripture tells us, and here we see that God is angry sometimes. That's clear. According to the scriptures, God opposes and fights against evil, and evil is a real thing. Evil is something that we can see and we can name because we have a guide, because we have scripture to understand evil and understand good and understand the difference. We're not lost in this maze in the world of not knowing the difference between right and wrong. We have the gift of the scriptures to help us. So let's say that one more time. You can know evil and you can know good because God reveals them to us. We don't have to decide. We can't decide which is which. But if you don't have a guide or a story, if you don't have a reference point for this, which most of our culture, most of our world doesn't, then good and evil do become a matter of personal decision and choice at the end of the day. The prophet Isaiah, and throughout scripture, but the prophet Isaiah most pointedly warns strongly against this. In chapter 520, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah is saying that those who do this will be judged strongly by God. So we do need to be clear then about what it is that God is fighting against, if he is pictured as a warrior here, what evil is, and what does it mean here in this context? And the best place to find out is the story itself. The story shows us. Verse 9 then describes the Egyptian armies God is fighting against. It says, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. This is the picture of the enemy. And the opening chapters of Exodus show us that God fights against Pharaoh through the plagues, fights against Egypt because Pharaoh economically oppresses the people. Pharaoh exploits them, enslaves them, treats them harshly. This is who God's fighting against. And God does fight up, rise up and fight against these things. And in this chapter of the story, it looks like sweeping out the Egyptian army who was about to bear down and re-enslave and plunder the Hebrews. But this, this story and this place of God rescuing and also smiting the Egyptian army, we hold it in the story, the larger story, of God's saving work in the world. In chapter 9, in the middle of the plagues, God clarifies why he's doing this, why he's judging Egypt. He says, so that my name may be declared throughout the whole earth. 
This is why this is happening, so that my name may declare, be declared throughout the whole earth. And that's not a narcissistic move. It's the same purpose God told Abraham about years before, that he might be a light to the nations, to make God's name known by being a different sort of people than all the countries and nations surrounding them. That's more humane and more just and more in line with how God created humans to be. This is the point. This is what he's uh, chosen them for. And it's the same for us. Remember, our purpose is to glorify God. But glorifying God means also enjoying him forever. These These things go together. Enjoying God, enjoying his delight, enjoying the fullness of his love for us is what it looks like when we are worshiping him. Well, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this defeat of Pharaoh's army, God's fighting on their behalf, is pictured and described as God's fighting cosmic forces of evil on a massive scale. Evil that can't just be defeated with swords and chariots. And even in this passage, it's significant that there's no, there's no sword or chariot clashing against Pharaoh's forces. It's only God doing what only God can do. Egypt becomes an embodiment for evil for the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament and the prophets and, and further on. And even, even in many uh, reflections and literature up to today, Martin Luther King Jr. used this metaphor all the time in his preaching. Uh, he loved preaching about Exodus and the deliverance from the Red Sea through the civil rights movement. Exodus was one of his favorite books. One sermon he preached was called the death of evil on, a sea, on the seashore. And his text was this, Exodus 14, 30. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. Here's a quote that, uh, from that sermon. He says, Egypt was the symbol of evil in the form of humiliating oppression, ungodly exploitation, and crushing domination. This story symbolizes something basic about the universe. It symbolizes something much deeper than the drowning of a few men, for no one can rejoice at the death or the defeat of a human person. This story at bottom symbolizes the death of evil. It was the death of inhuman oppression and ungodly exploitation. The death of the Egyptians upon the seashore is a glaring symbol of the ultimate doom of evil in its struggle with good. There's something in the very nature of the universe which is on the side of Israel in its struggle with every Egypt. There is something in the very nature of the universe which is ultimately comes to the aid of goodness and its perennial struggle with evil. King doesn't explicitly say it here, but that something in the very nature of the universe, he well knows, is our God, made known personally and physically in Jesus Christ. And not only does Jesus, the central point of our faith, the person who creates all of our faith, Not only does he come to the aid of what King calls goodness, but Jesus is the source and is the creator of goodness. And he is in our story the reference point and the person who sharpens our minds and hearts to know what is good and what is evil. The gospel insists on this. It shows us that God ultimately does defeat evil by taking that right penalty for sin on himself. And further in the book of Revelation... At the end of of the Bible, we see that Jesus himself, who's often in in the Gospels a a teacher and um, seen very differently, but in Revelation, he's also pictured as a warrior. 
A warrior with a sword coming again to defeat evil. It's congruent with, the, with this picture in Exodus. This is our God. Made known in Jesus, he won't let evil stand. He won't. And this is why we worship him. This is what happens in Exodus. And this is one reason we worship God today. The Hebrews got to see God fight for them in a crazy dramatic way. I mean, it's hard to fathom, really. The sea opening, their escape through it, crashing waves down on their oppressors. It's, it's mind-blowing. It was a moment where God stepped in and fought against evil, clearly as only God could have done. But if we zoom out, this dramatic event, this use of creation and doing battle, it's amazing, and it, it fit into the world of the ancient Near East, more so than it would have into ours, where the people expected the gods to be controlling the sun and the moon and the seas and the stars. Egypt inhab inhabited all those places with gods. So into this, the one true God stepped in and said, I am the true God. I will save my people. This is what it looks like. And, and the, the text here increasingly over and over says, this is God defeating the Egyptian gods. It was a cosmic battle, but the rescue that you and I look to is different, isn't it? It's not this Red Sea crossing. This isn't our reference point for God's salvation for us. Our reference point is Easter. It's the cross. And it was different because it cut totally against the grain of power in the Roman world and how, God, how the gods would have acted there. Enough so that the Apostle Paul says that the cross is folly to this world. It makes absolutely no sense to this world. If you're going to deliver someone, you don't do it with a cross. But the Gospels tell us that on the cross, God did do battle with evil. God subverts the power of evil th through the cross by absorbing all of the pain, all of the death that you and I deserve because of our sin. So that you and I don't have to do this. So that you and I don't have to, have to suffer. We have a warrior God who fights for us but it looks like death on a cross. And because of that blood shed, God no longer sees us as our sins deserve, as our sins rightly deserve. He sees us as sons and daughters adopted into his family. And we can be at peace with him. We don't have to live in that sort of unholy fear. We're at peace. We're healed by his wounds, which gives us this abundant life that Jesus talks about that stretches beyond death. And this song from Exodus, all, uh, all the way back in Exodus, many millennia ago at the sea, even hints at this, this eternal life that, that goes on forever with God. In verses 17 and 18, it uh, pro proclaims Israel's hope that they will be planted in God's home for eternity. And it ends that the Lord will reign. The Lord will reign forever and ever. God's defeat of evil will be final forever and ever. And God's defeat of those who align themselves fully with evil will be final forever and ever. This series is about the wilderness. And I want to say, though, in the wilderness, the hope of being in God's home under the shelter of his wings forever and ever, for all evil being vanquished for eternity and living in that safety, it can be difficult to hang on to. It's true, isn't it? It's the core, it's a core of biblical faith. If you call yourself a Christian, if you know the Bible, you know these things. 
to be true. Most of you do, and most of you believe them to be true. But it can be hard to hang on to in the wilderness when a Red Sea-type deliverance feels like a really long time ago. I know, or when following a narrow path, naming the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior is difficult, and living by his words and his teaching brings derision from others or confusion at best. When loss or shattered dreams or, or grief dull you, makes it feel like life is an unfair game that's just consistently rigged to make you lose, it can be hard to hang on to this hope and this vision. In the wilderness, these wildernesses of loneliness, loss, depression, hope can certainly wane, can't it? I know. I'm going to tell you about one man who lived in a wilderness experience for most of his life many years ago. His name was Charles. Charles lived with heavy periods of depression throughout his life. He suffered also, he writes in his journal, from consistent anxiety. He writes about family conflict, especially with his brother. He writes about his, his wife's miscarriage at one point that plunged him into depths of depression. This is one entry from his journal he wrote on June 3rd, 1738. On one of his darker, darker days, Charles wrote this, My deadness continued, and the next day increased. I rose exceeding heavy and averse to prayer, so that I almost resolved not to go to church. I returned home, and I lay down with the, with the same load upon me. They sung, but I had no heart to join, much less in public prayer. I was very averse to coming among them, but forced myself to it and spent two or three hours in singing, reading, and prayers. This exercise a little revived me, and I found myself much assisted to pray. This man, Charles Wesley, knew the wilderness. He knew it well. He lived in a lot of darkness. But he also knew how to sing. This man wrote over 6,500 hymns. 6,500 hymns, songs he wrote, of singing to our God. Isn't that incredible? And sometimes, even him says he had to force himself to sing in the wilderness. He didn't feel like it, but he did it. And I love his honesty here. He says it revived him a little bit, just a little, just enough to carry on. And he didn't sing just any tune. He just didn't just hum happy tunes, empty songs. He wrote robust songs about God, whose name is Jesus. He wrote about the weariness of life the burdens he carried. He wrote about the hope of glory too. So in just a, a little bit, Paul is going to come and sing one of these songs for us. One of his hymns, it's called Jesus, Lover of My Soul. And you'll hear these. You'll hear the weariness in it. You'll hear the longing in it. And you'll hear also a deep hope grounded in Jesus into all eternity. You know, I almost gave up writing this sermon this week on song and finding hope in God, particularly through song, because we can't sing together today. It felt so wrong and, and difficult, and it's painful. I acknowledge that. 
But worship is more than singing, which is good news. Worship is more than singing. And this is a little blip in our history of the church, in our history as a church, Big C Church, but also as St. Pete's. It won't last like this forever, and I don't think it'll even last like this for too much longer. And also, you can still sing to the Lord. It's beautiful when we're gathered together, but we can still do it at other times. Charles Wesley also writes about his joy in singing alone, often, as he rode on horseback from town to town. He says he would just sing at the top of his lungs. When we praise the name of Jesus in any way, whether it's through song or another way, no matter our feeling even, no matter if it's a depth of despair singing or a joyful singing, both are important, we get to hope again. We can enter into hope again because we declare this unbelievable truth that we as Christians believe, that Jesus is actually alive, that Jesus actually died, he rose from the dead, and he gave us his life and he's a lover of our soul, and that you will be able to worship him in every way, in any way, by any means, into all eternity. This is coming. This is a little blip, and it is coming, and we will get to join in praise together in song and other ways into all eternity. Will you pray with me?